Amen. When Matthew chapter 16, uh, verses 16 to 23, or 13 to 23, Jesus asks two very simple but matter-of-fact questions to those who are following him. Um, The first was, who do people say that I am? And you'll remember, I'm sure, they began to answer quickly. They they joined in together. The they seems to indicate that more than one are responding. And they say things like John the Baptist and, and others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. In other words, everybody seems to have their own opinion. Everybody has their own idea. Everybody is imagining who Jesus is. Some are basing that on who they want him to be. Um, some, again, it, it's just their imagination. And it sounds really familiar. It should for us today because a lot of that is going on even now. As some of you re- may remember at our very first service back in 2017 in June when we met for the very first time. Um, I shared some of these examples with you. Uh, Muslims say Jesus was a great prophet, but certainly only a mere mortal. Definitely not God. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses uh, believe that God, uh, Jesus was God's first creation, uh, but that he did have a pre-existence. He had a, a pre-human existence as, uh, well, as Michael, the archangel. And they believe that he was born of a virgin and he died on a stake, but was raised an immortal spirit by God. So there was this transition. Mormons say Jesus was a created being, actually the brother of Satan, a love child between God and Mary, greater than other spirit children that again existed, they, greater but of the same nature. And then we have Hindus who say Jesus was a good man and a great religious teacher, among many others who taught about love and humility and compassion and forgiveness. And unfortunately, there are those even within the visible church today that have differing opinions in the local church who confess or profess him to be something other than the Bible presents him to be. There are those who have, again, made made him up or a a description of him or or who they believe him to be it's it's a matter of their own imagination and who they really who they want him to be rather than who he is declared to be it's their own personal opinion upon which they base these things well the second question that Jesus then asked is he asked those disciples following him who do you say that I am who do they? And we've got a good idea of what they think. But what, what do you say? And again, he's asking them. Um, he's asking them all. But Peter jumps in on behalf of the rest, as he often did. And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Nails it. And Jesus says, blessed are you. But flesh and blood hasn't, did not reveal that to you. Right? It was God himself who revealed that to you. It was My Father in Heaven who revealed that. You say, okay, well, why is that important? We're in Hebrews. Why begin in Matthew? Well, those questions are important for us to ask. Uh, Those questions are important to ask uh, because the fierce reality is any individual or any church that gets 
or that professes him to be other than the Bible presents him to be, who believe him to be other than the Bible presents him to be, anybody who misses who he is is going to have a great deal of trouble understanding what he's done. Those things go hand in hand. And so if we don't get his person right, we're really going to struggle with his work. And we need to have both. Those, those two are inextricably linked. And that's why the author of Hebrews is beginning where he begins. That's why he starts this letter by describing who Jesus is. Remember the context. Uh, Jewish Christians uh, who are being exhorted by this author to stay the course in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of their trouble, in the midst of their suffering. Remember, the, the persecution is beginning to escalate at this point. And he wants them to not back down, to, to not forsake Christ, to not renounce their faith, to definitely not go back to their Judaism and to place themselves under the law, to not take matters into their own hands because of their external circumstances. And he says, listen, don't go back because Jesus is far greater, far better. Or or life with Jesus is far better than life under the law because Jesus himself is better than anything about Judaism. He's far greater. He's far better. And so he, he starts at that point, the first three verses. I had Daniel read those again tonight because he begins at that place of saying he's the final prophet. He's the ultimate king. He's the perfect priest. Laying that foundation. Describing Jesus as someone that, or, or as, as a person who did do something. Again, they're inextricably linked, but doing something that no one in the Old Testament was allowed to do. No one could hold all three positions. And then in verses 4 to 14, Christ brings all that together. And then in verses 4 to 14, the author builds upon that. We start there at that threefold office and then move. And the author says that Jesus, not only is he fulfilling that threefold office, but he's better than the angels. And and I get it. It's like, why there? Why go from the threefold office to say that Jesus is better than the angels? I mean, maybe later on. But why do we begin? Why do we bring that uh, up front, so to speak? And... And so we need to, again, we need to consider the context. What's going on at the time? Um, There were Gnostics around who were promoting angel worship, for one. uh, But there were also a group of Jews that they were were, uh, involved in a Dead Sea sect. uh, And they believed that the Messiah was actually going to, the Messiah himself was going to come in that, in, in in a trio, in a trifecta, so to speak, there was going to be one who was a part was going to be a prophet. There was going to be a Messiah who was going to oversee the spiritual life. Uh, and then there was going to be a Messiah who was going to oversee the, the, the social or, um, you know, the political life. And so we also get a better understanding of why he started with the threefold office. But they believed that not only were, were there going to be three, but all three of those were going to be under... Ruled by and in, in subjection to Michael the Archangel. And so in both cases, whether it was Gentile and their angel worship or Jews and their idea that 
that the, the angelic, or Michael, was going to be in a loftier position than even the Messiah, you've got two groups of people who were elevating something, someone, above the Lord Jesus. They, he, they, were, they were elevating something else to a position that only Christ should hold. And so he takes the time to explain who Jesus is, and not just who he believed Jesus to be, but who the Scriptures declared him to be. Right? He's already gone back and said, we have the authoritative Word of God. God has spoken fully and finally in His Word, and we have that. And, and so he says, that, and he goes back to the Word itself to say, this is who Jesus is. Not only do I believe that it's authoritative, I'm going to show you that it's authoritative. And brothers and sisters, this is important for Christians now more than ever before. We have, uh, we have people confused, about, as I've already said, about who Jesus is. But we also, as we look around, we see not only uh, do they believe in something other than who Jesus has professed himself to be and who we have in his word, but they also are kind of themselves are believing in and, and preoccupied with angels. You see this in blog posts, you see this in book titles and magazine articles, stories of strange angelic visits and, and tips on how we can interact with them and, 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 and talk with them. And angels even today are being exalted and in the process Christ is being devalued. We see His person and work being diminished and he himself, in the name of spirituality, Christ is being eclipsed. So, Hebrews. So that we might be equipped, so that we might be encouraged, and that we might not shrink back in the midst of, of our struggles and, and, and our, um, our suffering and other, the things that we might, our external circumstances, that we might... Keep our eyes on Jesus and also so that we might be equipped to, to help others who find themselves tempted to shrink back. So our outline's going to look like this. We're going to look at the more excellent name of Jesus, the more excellent worship of Jesus, the more excellent reign of Jesus, and the more excellent position of Jesus. And let's pray before we begin. Father, would you, by your Spirit, allow us tonight to see and hear the truth about Christ in such a way that our souls expand. And as our souls expand, may He expand. Open our eyes and our ears and enlighten our minds in such a way that we find Him bigger tonight. May we consider Him more fully and completely. And as we do, help us to strive to enter into the rest that you have provided for us in and through Him. And it's in... The more excellent name of Jesus, the Son, we pray. Amen. And amen. So how is Jesus better than the angels? First, we look at he has a more excellent name. And we look back at verse 3 that's already been read for us. It says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And on the surface, this may not seem to be a very compelling argument because what's in a name, right? But really, there's everything in a name. There's everything in a name. 
For, for a Jew at that time, particularly, it communicated a great deal. It communicated essence and nature and character and dignity and position and rank. In some cases, it was a pledge or a seal of who a person was to be or would become. And, and we know that it was names were significant because there were times when God even changed the names of people. To reflect what he was doing or was going to do in the lives of those whose names he changed. So the writer says that Jesus' name was more excellent than any, any and all angels because he was the son. His name was son. And to communicate this, in doing so, the writer uses a couple of phrases that are a bit confusing. He says, first, having become as much superior to angels. And then he also says he inherited a name. And they're confusing because as we saw last week, Jesus, in our, in our study of the first three verses, and even in our study the week after Christmas of John chapter 1, Jesus, who is the Son, was both God and with God in the beginning when the beginning began. And not only, well, because of that, He was one in essence with the Father, yet distinct from the Father in His person and all that eternally. So He was eternally the Son. It's always been that way. He's always been the Son. So the question that naturally arises is, if He was always the Son, if He's eternally the Son, how did He become Or how is it that he became as much superior to angels? And how is it that he inherited the name if he's always had it? Well, he comes along. The writer knows it's going to be confusing, I think. And he comes along and follows that up with a couple of uh, Old Testament quotes. A couple of Old Testament passages. And he places them within a rhetorical question. And it helps clarify what he means In the previous statement. The first quotation is from Psalm 2 verse 7. That we read earlier in our confession of sin. And it was from a psalm. Psalm 2 of course is a messianic psalm. It It was considered a messianic psalm by the Jews. It's considered a messianic psalm by us today. And it says you are my son today I have begotten you. And while David of course and his descendants are in view in this psalm. The author of Hebrews says this is really about Jesus. He is the son. And then we know from Paul, from Acts chapter 13 and Romans 1, that the phrase today or this day, I have begotten you, refers to his resurrection, his ascension, and his enthronement at the right hand of the Father. In other words, this phrase, today I have begotten you, refers to his exaltation. Now hold hold that thought here. Now let's move to the next next phrase here. Second Samuel seven fourteen. He says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And this, of course, was applied to Solomon, who had a special relationship and who God treated with fatherly affection. But this, too, the writer of Hebrews says, applies to the Lord Jesus. It is Christ who has been, who is that son who who shall be to the father a son. It is the Lord Jesus who is from David's line and and who is exalted and would reign eternally. And we we bring all that together. 
And we understand that the author's point is that the eternal son had taken on flesh for us, became a man that he might be our representative. And he, he came to do what we could not do for ourselves. He came to do what Adam failed to do. He came to do what Israel failed to do. All of whom are referred to as son or sons. But he as the son succeeded. In the capacity as our representative. He was obedient to the point of death on the cross. He did what the father sent him to do. And therefore through his death he earned the right he earned the right to receive the inheritance that the father and son had agreed upon in the covenant of peace prior to the foundation of the world. Richard Phillips says this, it was his resurrection, Christ's resurrection, by raising him from the dead that God gave final approval to Jesus who had perfectly fulfilled the law and obediently endured the cross, bestowing on him the name Son of God with the Father's divine and supernatural signature. Ligon Duncan puts it this way. He says, in fulfillment of his work of salvation, he receives a name. Without denying that the Son is eternally the Son, the author of Hebrews is stressing that the Son is displayed to be uniquely related to the Heavenly Father by his resurrection, by the ascension, by his enthronement at the right hand. And by his heavenly session as, as he rules. So we were to wrap all of that up and make it into one statement. We say that he who was the eternal son inherited his name as the God man. In his capacity as our representative. He earned the name son that was eternally his. It was always his. As the eternal son, it was earned by him as the one who took on flesh. And the author says, what angel has ever been called son? Right, what angel has ever been called son? To what angel has God ever said anything like that? And of course, it's rhetorical and we automatically push to the negative, right? And it's like, well, no. That's never happened. Why? Because no angel is who Jesus is and no angel has done what Jesus has done. He's far superior. He's superior to any and all the angels because in Paul, Paul's words, God gave him a name. God gave him a name that is above every name. So he has a more excellent name. Not only does he have a more excellent name, but he's better than angels because of the more excellent worship of Jesus. This is a, a little easier than the first. In verse 6 he says, and again he brings the firstborn into the world. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels, let all God's angels worship him. Pretty clear, right? The angels are to worship God. The angels have always worshipped God. So he's quoting De Deuteronomy 32 or Psalm 97, uh, both from, well, from the Greek translation of, of the Hebrew text. And the author says that the son who is first in honor and rank, he, the chief one, he alone is deserving of worship. Right? Because the son is God, 
He alone is to be worshipped. And so when he came into the world, who worshipped? Angels worshipped. Hark the herald, angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. And then Revelation 5 says that the angels will always worship the Son. It'll always be the case. We ourselves are joining even now with angels in our worship of the Lord Jesus. And he's better than the angels because the angels worship him. It's not the other way around. They're the ones he has created. Therefore, he is the one that they worship. It's a more excellent worship. Then the author says that he's better than angels because of a more excellent reign. He has a more excellent reign. Look at verses 8 and 9. He quotes, and we're going to come back to 7, but in verses 8 and 9, he quotes Psalm 45 that we sang as we began our worship tonight. And in the words of one writer, what he's doing is not only does this provide an important Old Testament shadowing of the doctrine of the Trinity, but stunningly, he stunningly asserts that the true king of glory, the true Messiah in whom righteousness will come to reign is one with God himself. It's an amazing statement. It's the son who's going to rule righteously because he has always loved righteousness. He loves righteousness and he hates iniquity. He's always loved righteousness. All of the son's actions were motivated out of love for the father. He loved his law. He delighted to do the father's will. And and because he loved righteousness, he hated iniquity. The the two go hand in hand. We can't love righteousness without hating iniquity. The two are inseparable. And so he continues to love righteousness. He continues to hate sin And his royal power and authority that's symbolized in that scepter is a power and authority that's righteous and and will not, is not, will not ever be executed arbitrarily. He has, his power is a righteous power. His, his rule is even and fair. His, he, he opposes injustice and evil. His judgment His eventual judgment will be even and fair because of who he is. And then in verses 10 to 12, the author quotes Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27, and and says that his sovereign reign is going to last eternally. It's never going to end. He's the ultimate king. He has... An eternal, he's also an eternal king. He's an eternal king, so his rule will also be eternal. That which he's created, the, the language there is that which he's created is going to come to an end, but he will not. That which, that which is wearing out like old clothes, but he, he will never wear out. You know, our, our years are numbered. His are not. In Paul's words, the present form of this world is passing away. But he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's gonna, at some point, he's going to roll up those old garments that are wearing out. He's going to toss them away. He's going to get rid of them. And bring out new ones. 
He's going to bring out new ones. In Peter's words, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. But the Lord Jesus will remain. He will remain and He's going to make all things new. It's a promise. It's an assurance. He has a more excellent reign. Lastly, he has a more excellent position. A more excellent position. I told you we'd come back to verse 7. In verse 7, he quotes Psalm 104, verse 4, to say that as important as angels are, as grand as they might be, as frightening as they may be, they're still servants of the Sovereign One. They still do what He says they are to do. They are the one, He is the one through whom they've been created. And so He has every right as He rules to, to tell them what it is that they're to do. He sits enthroned. They continually serve. And He uses them to His own end as He sees fit. And in verse 13, He says the same. And to which of the angels has He ever said? Another rhetorical question that pushes us to the negative, of course. And He says, Who, to which angel has He ever said, Sit at My right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who, to, or who are to inherit salvation? Again, quoting Psalm 110, verse 1. And He compares their positions one to another. One who is reigning and ruling. Others who are serving. They are in subjection to Him because He has created them. He has sat down. He is, His work is finished as we said last week. But they do not sit because their work is never done. They are perpetually working. But He will come again and His kingdom will be realized fully and finally and the not yet will arrive because His reign is everlasting. And everlasting because His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He is an everlasting king. Angels are going to continue to do what they've been, what they've been created to do. Their work is never done. Verse 14 says that they're ministering spirits. Who are they ministering to? You, to? They're ministering to those who are heirs of salvation. Who is that? You and me. Angels ministering to us. In ways that we cannot see, in the ways that we can't even fathom, in ways that we don't even understand. Oh, that we would pray like Elisha's, like Elisha, or, or, or that Elisha would pray for us, that we might see what all is going on throughout the course of a day. And those angels ministering to us, waging war for us. But it's the son who has a, has a destiny of reigning. And it's the angels who have a destiny of serving. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now let's think. How, how, might, we, how might we consider you know, applications for us? Thoughts that we need to take away. Implications for us first. And this is really simple. But we need to be on the alert for any, anyone that makes anything or anyone... Or makes more of anything or anyone other than Christ. To make more of something or someone else means making less of Him. Anything that you read, anything that you hear that makes more of you and less of Christ needs to be run from. 
Even in the name of spirituality. Secondly, in this passage, we have a perfect example of how to read the Old Testament. Again, he has set us up in the first three verses, the full and final word. We have that, that full and final word here. Christ is revealed. God has revealed himself here in his written word. We have it. It's authoritative and sufficient. And the author illustrates perfectly what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, that everything, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, all point to him. And we see a perfect illustration of the analogy of faith where scripture interprets scripture. And we see him taking and interpreting the Old Testament in light of the new. Therefore, we should not unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament is about Christ. It's inspired by God. It's authoritative. And we must read it and interpret it correctly. Just as our author has done. And three, because Christ is the Son, all of the promises and blessings that are associated with sonship are concentrated in Him. He's earned it. And if all of those blessings, all of those things are concentrated in Him, for you and I, for anyone to participate in them, to experience those same blessings, for, for those to be ours, we must be united to Him. We don't gain those by ourselves. They're not obtained by ourselves. They're obtained in Him. Our union with Him. It is in Him. It is to Him that we should look. It is to Him that we should place our faith and rest in Him for our salvation. And as we trust in Him and rest in Him, then we experience the blessings of being children of God. Then we experience the blessings of being co-heirs with Christ. And closely related to that, and number four is that because Christ has earned his inheritance and his obedience, and it's only through him that we participate in those blessings, to talk about earning our salvation or attempting to earn our salvation in any way is absolutely absurd to the point of offensive. Because he has done it all. He's done it all. He had to earn them as our representative. And he did that. He did what you and I couldn't do. He did it for us. We receive those things in and through him alone. And then finally, these these verses describe Jesus as eternal and omnipotent and immutable. He has no beginning and no end. The eternal Son. There is no limit to His power. And He does not change. He will not change. That means He is never going to change His mind about you or me or lose His power to save us. We are secure. I want you to listen to these words Again, from Richard Phillips, I I think he does a better job than I ever could to really cause us to to think about what is ours. He says, if all this is true, which it is, 
But he says, if all this is true, what can a soul need in time or eternity that cannot be found in Christ? Do you need pardon for your sin? See him and know that God has accepted the sacrifice of his blood on your behalf. Do you need reconciliation to God? There he is at the right hand of God, interceding for you and offering his own perfect work as the ground of your acceptance. Do you need newness of life, a new heart, a new strength to follow him? From his heavenly throne, he sends mighty resources, even angels, to your aid. But better yet, better yet, he sends his Holy Spirit to work within you with his own power. Do you have troubles, difficult decisions to make, choices that worry you or problems that cause you fear and anxiety? Christ is enthroned with power. A Savior who cares for you with wisdom and love, with power and grand purpose for your future. Do you fear death? He is reigning right now. Until even the last enemy shall be conquered. Because he reigns victorious, death will have no hold on you. But only ushers you in to the courts of glory. Jesus is better. May we always keep our eyes fixed upon him. Let's pray. Father, would you now by your spirit 